Welcome to this podcast of the New York City Bar Association, where we begin a new series, Making It Work, the in-house outside litigation council dynamic. In this episode, Nike and DLA Piper. Christina Lewicki, a member of the City Bar's Litigation Committee, speaks with Rob Lywand, Vice President and Chief Litigation Counsel at Nike, and Scott Wilson, a partner at DLA Piper. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Christina Lewicki. Welcome to Making It Work, the in-house outside litigation counsel dynamic. I'm Christina Lewicki, member of the New York City Bar Association's Litigation Committee and the host of this endeavor, a new podcast series where in-house litigation attorneys and their outside counsel share stories and compare perspectives on what makes their collaboration successful, what makes their dynamic work. Joining me for our first episode are two attorneys representing Nike. Rob Lywand is Vice President and Chief Litigation Counsel at Nike, where he oversees the brand's global litigation portfolio, investigations, employment law, and resilience operations comprised of security, business continuity, global intelligence, and product security worldwide. He has been at Nike for over 16 years and previously served as its Global Employment Council. Earlier in his career, Rob was a labor and employment litigator at a leading national firm. He is a native Staten Islander and a graduate of Cornell Law School. Scott Wilson is a partner in the New York office of DLA Piper, where his practice focuses on complex commercial litigation and government and internal investigations. Scott previously served as senior advisor and special counsel to the New York Attorney General. He is also a past secretary of the Council on Criminal Justice here at the New York City Bar Association. Rob and Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Rob, my first question is to you. What is it like to be the steward of one of the world's most iconic brands? Well, um, first of all, I'm, I'm part of a giant team that stewards the Nike brand. And I think mostly um, my job is not to mess it up because we've got uh, great creatives out there, athletes, um, great marketing department, really figuring out every day how to manage what the brand stands for across the world and multiple countries and different things to different people. And so my job is, is really to focus on, you know, how, how, how we keep from stepping in it really. Uh, and so that's how I look at my job as a steward of the brand. I do think the stewarding the brand is making sure that you look beyond your litigation in front of you beyond the immediate question to say, how does this look ultimately when a consumer is looking at it? How does this look? How does the position I'm taking in this litigation um, work or when uh, people are going to read about it in the newspaper? Uh, people are going to read about it across the world. How does it reflect on other things that Nike is doing? And so what it really means is having a really broad look at whatever the uh, issue is in front of your face. And I don't know, Scott, if you want to add on to that from an outside counsel perspective. I think that what, all, I would, all I would say is that we're very cognizant that when we stand up in court or we're talking to a regulator 
on behalf of this company that um, people arrive at those conversations with uh, an opinion uh, about the brand, about the company. It's never an unknown quantity. They've grown up with seeing the swoosh everywhere, or they have a relationship uh, with a club that, or a team that's sponsored by the brand. And so we're aware that we need to speak not just to the legal issue that's in front of us, but also um, to media that might be paying attention, to consumers that might be paying attention. And I think that's, that's uh, something that is true for all consumer-facing brands that are engaged in, in litigation. Uh, but but maybe no more so than for Nike, given the um, given given just the immediate recognition uh, that the company has with everyone. Yeah, and it's it, it's also how you define a win, right? Like, what does a, a win mean um, in our space? Because it could be a win in litigation and a loss for the brand as a whole. And so, early on, when you have a case in front of you, you have to decide. You know what? What's the ultimate outcome here that's best for the brand and the company? Because, you know, a win in a particular case may not uh, may not be what's best. Rob, have you ever been surprised by the the reaction that a jury or a, or a judge has had to to Nike being in the courtroom? Um, I have. Uh, you know, in certain jury pools, we've had people take themselves off the jury or try to take themselves off the jury um, because Nike had been so involved in their community locally uh, in giving, in building playgrounds uh, that they they felt they couldn't be fair. Um, and, you know, uh, in, in others, you know, there's, there's always questions when they walk in uh, and uh, the other lawyer sees what's on their feet. Um, <laughs> It could become a, a you know a question because people are 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 a lot of people are committed and love the brand in in a way that they have since childhood. So it it makes it makes a difference. How did you start working together? Um, we so maybe I should let Rob answer, but from my perspective, we started working together on um, what turned out to be, as we pulled the thread, a, a large global matter involving. Um, uh, meetings and interviews on, on a couple continents. And we traveled a lot together in, in Europe and South America to, to do those meetings. That sounds very unfamiliar now that we're all stuck, stuck in our apartments and homes due to the pandemic, but there was a time when we got on planes. And uh, it, I think having that downtime um, together between meetings in the evening is a, is a great way to get to know someone beyond just the matter in front of you can help contribute to um, building a, a relationship of trust between an outside lawyer and an inside lawyer. Rob, what are the qualities that are important to you in an outside lawyer? What are you looking for? It's important to me, I think, whenever I'm dealing with an outside firm and, and the people that I rely on to litigate our cases is that, you know, they're open to, you know, uh, and they have a sense of humor, but they're also open to different ideas and something different than what they always do or always know. And I think to me, what that means is you'll be more willing to, when we engage as a team, 
try different things in, in you know that we may need to win the argument or get by or convince a juror of something else and you know uh, you know the, the 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 litigator who is set in their ways the litigator who knows everything uh, the litigator whose ego is so giant right that you can't get their head through the door is not my uh, person to deal with and you know I, I think you get to know that both when you're working together and then uh, when you're in these social situations and especially like we you know we we travel and we had first year associates with us and the litigator just tells us the first year associate go stay in the room while I take the client out not for me um, again, like if you don't treat the people who work with you in your firm with respect, your client's going to see it. And I think most of us are not going to like it because, you know, where, where I work, uh, you know, we work as a team and I expect that from our law firms too. Okay. So I'm hearing you say that you don't want to work with lawyers who think they know everything and aren't open to new ideas and perspectives. And you don't want to work with lawyers who treat others, including first-year associates, as less than really valued team members. It's about successful people using their power to the detriment of results and relationships. You know, those, those are those are two big ones for me. Uh, I, 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 I do think it's you you have to you have to put aside the idea that you know everything. Um, and I, I was struck at Nike, I think, and I, I learned it there. And I didn't really learn it at a firm that w- if Nike, a bunch of people are going to jump into your lawyering, right? And you're like, what? You know, I'm not, you come from a firm and you're like a partner at a firm and you're like, what? I'm the lawyer here, right? I, I know what's going on and this is how we're going to run this. And then at Nike, all of a sudden, you've got all these people who are non-lawyers sort of jumping into the case with their ideas. And at first, when you start working there, you're like, what the, what's going on? And then you, you start to realize like, oh my God, they have great ideas, right? And you start listening to them and you start incorporating them and you end up in a far better place than you were before. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think that ability from an outside lawyer to start to realize you're not the only person who has an idea about how this works um, can get you so much further with a client. I mean, we rely on you. I mean, I always say this to my outside lawyers. I know I, I rely on you to be smarter than I am. Right. And I, rely on you to be experts in things that I'm not an expert in. Um, but you also have to be open to other ideas that may come from other places. Scott, what are some of your guiding principles in working with in-house lawyers? Can you give us some tips? I try to start always from the question, what does the client want to do? And if possible, to accomplish that. One of the great things about working with Rob and Nike is they're, they're um, very direct and assertive about what it is they want to do. And they allow their outside counsel visibility into their thinking, which at the end of the day, I think lets us do a better, a better job of representing the company when the training wheels come off and we're standing up in court or talking to a regulator, you know, live uh, without, without the, uh, the net underneath us. That, that's also, I think, a benefit to, when you, you get into a rhythm and you work with the client for a number of years across a number of matters, 
you develop a familiarity with um, their risk tolerance, what kind of what kind of statements they're comfortable being made in court, um, how how things are going to play out with various internal constituencies, and it allows you to just be more efficient, I think, in answering questions as they come up or dealing with dealing with issues. Um, that being said, what I always tell new attorneys, in addition to inviting them to to come out on the town whenever that when that happens with clients, is to treat every interaction with the client as an opportunity to impress or be very unimpressive. I don't take it for granted that that, that Rob is ever going to call me again. It's quite possible that in the course of this podcast he'll fire me, um, depending on what I what I say. So uh, I think taking that sort of Groundhog Day approach to um, you know earning earning the opportunity every time is is at least what I recommend people people do, because it really is a privilege to be able to represent a company like this. Rob, can you give us an example of a time when you had to overcome outside counsel's initial resistance to a particular approach? I've had experiences in the trial setting where I've had outside counsel be resistant to us wanting to jury test certain things. And uh I'm always flabbergasted when a lawyer thinks they know so much that they are not going to uh, want us to help them get better and understand the case. I'm like, what? We're willing to invest this kind of money to help you get better and you don't want it? Um, uh, which, which seems ridiculous to me. Uh, and, you know, again, like, uh, like that's just wrong. And I, I, I've, I, I, you know, in that kind of situation, I've always said, well, what's your reason for it? And then usually it's, oh, we know, you know, we know what this is. We know what the, how the jury is going to react and we know how the case is going to come out. We, we know the arguments we should make. And I'm like, well, don't you think you might be surprised? Don't you want the confirmation or you so sure, right? You know, when 12 people get in a box, what they're going to do. Um, and so I've really, I legitimately have had outside counsel uh, uh, sort of push back on that. And, you know, and I, then, then I just draw the line and say, we're doing it anyway. It's, it's our money and we're doing it. And if you don't like it, I'll just go find somebody who will welcome the opportunity. Um, the other, the other situation I've run into is where, uh, uh we were, and I had just joined Nike out about a year in and we were having a, a, a litigation over, uh, a product, product litigation and the guy shows up three and, and our, our, I hadn't been handling it. And the guy shows up three or four months before trial without a plan. And I said, well, what's the plan? And he's like, well, I'm the expert in this area in this kind of product case. And, you know, ultimately if uh, we go for a jury, I'll, you know, if it's going to get to a trial, I'm like, we're three months away from trial. What are you talking about? Like, what have you done? And the guy hadn't done anything and he considered himself a very experienced trial lawyer in this area. And, uh, he was, uh, by the next day representing somebody else cause he wasn't representing us anymore. And, uh, the great, the great story about that case is we hired some other firm, um, who actually found a uh, video of the incident that occurred. And so it was a case where, uh, uh, 
a, a baseball player was struck by a, a pitch while wearing a batting helmet that was a Nike batting helmet. Um, and he received a cut on his head. Uh, the helmet did what exactly what it was supposed to do. Uh, the helmet absorbed the impact. The helmet dispersed the impact. The helmet cracked. Uh, and But the plaintiffs showed a video of the person getting hit with the pitch and falling to the ground. And the video ended when the person fell to the ground. Uh, and the new firm discovered the end part of the video where the person gets up, dusts himself off and runs to first base. And uh, the judge was flabbergasted by the fact that they had cut the video and we had found it. And so, uh, you know, the case uh, ended up in the, in the right space after that. But like the, the lawyer wasn't prepared. And so in one case, you know, where, where I can get the jury testing and I said, you, you can take the jury testing or not. In that case where the lawyer wasn't prepared, it's like you're gone. Um, I can't like that's such a fundamental miscue that I can't I can't have it. And the helmet story is a great cautionary tale. Yeah, uh, you, you can't you you I and I, in some of the matters we've been involved with, and especially with my own preparation, I, I think I do think you can't think you're again. It has to do with ego, like the ego of the litigator. You can't think yourself too smart. Like you have to, to, I'm too smart to, to, to prepare. I'm too smart to listen to other people's ideas. Um, it just doesn't go along with the way that, that we work and it doesn't help. Have you ever been wrong, Scott? Scott, it's so, like, I, I it's, so it's so foreign. It's so foreign to Scott, like the possibility of being wrong that he can't, he can't fathom it. He fell off his chair. <laughs> Broke the, broke, the, broke the microphone. <laughs> Backing up, I'd like to focus on your past positions. Scott, you served as senior staff in the New York Attorney General's office. How does your work, uh, your government experience, strengthen the skills that you bring to your work representing Nike? I started working with Nike not long after I left government. And I think that's not, not, not just, not irrelevant because when you're a government lawyer, and I often encourage uh, people who are coming up as litigators to consider government service, you end up um, owning your own cases in a, in a very uh, complete way. You know, you don't have an army of associates to draft your briefs and carry carry the litigation bag and, and this, that, and the other. So you uh, you take on responsibility for something, you think about how it's ultimately going to play in front of the court in a way that I think um, uh, is common among attorneys who have served in government. And when I was in the New York State Attorney General's office, the executive office there, which is a great shop, it was the post-financial crisis period. We were heavily involved in the formation of the Residential Mortgage-Backed Securities Working Group, the RMBS Working Group. And that was a, a joint federal state effort that was co-chaired by the NYAG and senior officials at DOJ and SEC. And it was for me a, a real education and a window into d decision enforcement decision-making at the highest levels. Um, 
how the uh, charging decisions were made, decisions to settle, what kind of relief to seek. And I was getting that experience as, as part of my day job, but moonlighting to a degree with my own investigations, my own um, time in court on individual cases um, uh, in different parts of the office. And so I got a hybrid education at the New York AG's office um, that was really a formative experience for me. And when I started working with Nike, what I think that translated to was, A, I was used to working very collaboratively, a scrappy approach to um, uh, being willing to do everything from site check the brief to argue the motion. Um, and I had some, some insight to offer not just on what the, um, in a government matter, what the line attorney might be thinking about something, but how about the office as a whole might be approaching it. And Rob, how does your background as a litigator in private practice inform what you do in your in-house role directing outside counsel? Um, a couple of things. I, I think as, a, as an employment litigator, you end up doing a lot of investigations. And so you're you you know the investigation space pretty well and how to do it uh, how to um, get a, a rapport with the people that you're interviewing uh, you know I, I so I think you learn a lot there I think I also learned to take a pretty realistic view of motions uh, a realistic view of discovery so, um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to know if an outside counsel is running the bill up a flagpole or doing a lot of unnecessary work um, because I've sort of uh, know what it takes. I, I've seen it and uh, I, I'll know if an outside counsel is sort of just running a standard playbook on one of our cases. Well, we got this case in. Here's what we always do. We're going to we always file a motion to dismiss. We always do this. We always do that. Um or, or if there's an investigation that comes in, uh, you know, we, we don't, we believe we're going to look at each case as it is. We're not going to, and we're going to handle that case uh, in a, in a, in not in a sort of a rote manner. And uh, I, I do like when we were working with Scott on the investigation matters, you know, we didn't just run the investigation outside counsel playbook. Um, and it, it was helpful because that's not how we operate at Nike. And so, uh, you know, I think my background sort of gave me, it gives me the ability to uh, have a, a, a deeper understanding of what our outside counsel is advising and be able to question uh, whether we're going to spend money on certain things or whether a judge is really going to go for that argument, on, especially on discovery. Like, like, do we strategically, what do we get? other than you just want to make a big deal out of this? Or is that going to push the case forward to resist something? What do the underlying documents look like? Why do we have to act like we're afraid of them? Like all of those things, I think, having handled cases, having stood up in front of a judge, having made some stupid arguments, having been told at one time, you know, Mr. Linewand, uh, if you uh, do you want to win this motion? And I said, yes, your honor. And then he said, stop talking then. And so like having those kinds of experiences, I think sort of uh, allows you to understand 
what outside counsel has to do, how they have to plan, and the strategy for the case. One of the things that can be very frustrating as outside counsel, um, which which doesn't happen with with Nike, is if the uh, there's a game of telephone and the positions that are the advice that you're giving about what the company might consider doing in litigation um, it can't be effectively sort of communicated to internal stakeholders, to the CEO, to the general counsel. It is incredibly helpful, and I think in everyone's best interest, when um, you know Rob Rob has to uh, sell strategies internally, right, and sell um, tactics and messaging, and he can without without needing outside counsel on the phone speak to how things are going to play out, and I think that makes the whole process more efficient. I'm thinking of an example when we had prepared a a PI and we're we're ready to go to court um, on a matter that was of a very hot interest um, and something was going to happen in the real world that the company really wanted to stop. And I thought that we could probably negotiate a fast settlement out of the, um, out of the adversary, but there was a huge, huge pressure to file the, file the preliminary injunction, file the complaint, get going on the litigation. And Rob was able to, because of the, um, the, relationships he has internally, his longevity at the company, the experience he has to basically have everyone take it on faith that if we waited just a little longer, maybe we we would be able to fix fix it uh, and figure something out. And, and we did. But I think that sometimes the relationship between outside counsel and in-house counsel can break down if there is uh, uh, suspicion about exactly as Rob says, whether the case is being handled in a cookie-cutter manner, whether it's really necessary to go down that research rabbit hole, and um, it's just fantastic when you have someone who has their own um, intuitive sense for that and and can help you scope things in the way that's best for the case. This is a question for both of you. You've both prepared hundreds of witnesses for deposition or testimony. Then last year, you were both witnesses in the extortion trial of Michael Avenatti in the Southern District. The trial arose in the midst of the Department of Justice's investigation into the corruption in amateur and college basketball. I know you probably can't talk about the case, but stepping back, did you learn anything from the experience of being a witness? Um, how difficult it is. I, I, I think a lot of, uh, and I know Scott, may, we, we may have different opinions because Scott seemed to love it. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's 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 hard to be the one answering the questions and standing up, uh, you know, and explaining what you did a year or so, or maybe two years uh, in the past. And you know, it's it's easy when you're asking the questions and tell people not to be nervous and just ask the question that they're, you know, answer the question that's asked. Uh, you know, you don't have to explain things and, and you give them all the, the standard how to prepare a witness uh, speech. But when you're actually doing it, it's it's harder than I think lawyers who haven't sat in the chair uh, give credit uh, to, to our witnesses. And I, and I think it's it gets a little bit it gets even harder when there's a jury because you want you you. you really want the jury to understand what you're saying. And as a lawyer, you don't want to be too lawyerly. Um, 
And so luckily I don't have that problem. I, I think I just, I have a problem maybe coming off as a lawyer sometimes, but <laughs> people believing I'm a lawyer. Uh, I had a guy in a ski lift once kept saying, no, you're not. Like, cause he asked me what I did and he's like, no, 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 you're not. I'm like, okay, I'm not. Uh, but you know, I think you, you, a lot of times lawyers get caught up in, in, in the legalities of certain things. And when you're talking to a jury, you have to like put that aside and make sure you're explaining what you did in a way that everybody understands. So would you change a little bit how you prepare your witnesses? Would you tell them things that you otherwise wouldn't have said if you hadn't had this experience? Yeah, I mean, I I do. I really spend more time now uh, like telling them, like really focusing on the questions and saying, you know, take a take a minute. Like everybody, nobody expects you to answer right away. And you really got to think about what you're going to say and then say it. Uh, and I know we always give that explanation, but I think now I think I stop a little bit more and talk to the person about what they just said and like like the different ways it could be understood and how you know is there a better way to say it? Like, are you really think is that really what happened? Can you really? I I, I think I think it's really it's given me more appreciation for the art of being a witness. Scott, what did you take out of the experience of being a witness? Well, for a litigator to be in a courtroom, for I was on the stand for four days, it's an out-of-body experience to be there and, and not addressing the court, not addressing the jury. Every time there was a sidebar or a counsel was called up, it took, it took a fair bit of restraint for me to not just up and stand up out of the witness stand and stroll over to the, to the gaggle of attorneys on the other side of the, of the courtroom. Um, maybe it's just the time of day when we're recording this podcast and my blood sugar level. But one thing I took away from the experience of being a witness is how physically taxing it is, how it requires concentration to do what sounds so simple, listen to the question and answer it. Um, I think I have placed an increased focus to the point where Witnesses I've worked with probably think I'm channeling their mother or their grandmother or something. You know, have you have you had your breakfast? Did you get a good night's sleep? Um, and this has long been true. But if, you know, you see me roll into a deposition room or a government proffer session with a big litigation bag. There's a there's a chance it's exhibits, but it's more likely it's filled with filled with a mini bar full of bottled water, gum, energy bars, Tylenol, you name it. My war wagon. There was a Scott bag of snacks at the trial every day designated to keep Scott functioning. And it worked. Yeah, and preparing witnesses is more difficult at the moment because some of the trappings of, of being a witness, going to your lawyer's office in a deposition room or going to court to testify or going to uh, an SEC office, they also help, I think, draw a line between um, your day-to-day life, and now, okay, now's the time to focus, concentrate, turn off the phone, and I'm here. I am to really, to really be very careful that I speak accurately, and truthfully, um, in this environment. Now, I'm defending day-long depositions where I'm in New York, the witness is in Texas, the 
the attorney taking the deposition is in Chicago, and a lot a lot is lost in that in that scenario um, uh, because you just can't you just can't relate to the witness as well as you can uh, getting someone in person. So that brings me to to my last question. How has the pandemic affected how the two of you collaborate? You mentioned that it does have an effect on, on preparing witnesses. Uh, but what about the, the relationship between inside and outside counsel and your dealings with each other? And do you see uh, any permanent shifts that will outlast the public health crisis? Well, I, I, we had uh, done a lot of work with Scott's in New York and uh, I'm in uh, Oregon. And so a lot of our work had been by phone or uh, uh, telephone conference anyway. So I think from a from a personal standpoint, the, the thing that's lost is, I, you know, the travel. Um, and I did spend a fair amount of time in New York um, over the past few years. And I think that does help solidify a relationship. And I do think that while we can conduct business over Zoom, uh, and it will cut down in the amount of travel. I do think it's still necessary to have that uh, personal uh, interaction where you are together. And I think, you know, I was talking to somebody yesterday. And I, I do think, you know, after a year of this, the gloss of uh, working remotely uh, has, uh, you know, the shine of it has all come off. And I think you're starting to see sort of the, there, there are gaps and there are things that you miss when you're not interacting uh, on a personal level in the same room together. And so while I think the pandemic may have shown us that some efficiencies can be gained, some trips can be canceled, uh, I, I do think we're going to go back uh, to still finding that time to 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 interact personally, I, I you know, I, I can't imagine. And like, if we did a proffer session, uh, in with, uh, you know, with the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, I, I'd still want to be there, right? If we ever had one come up, uh, I'd still want to be with our outside counsel personally, uh, if that possibility arises in the future. And I think part of it is when you're talking to the regulators who are working on your case, I think. I want them to understand, and you know, this is I represent Nike, and this is how we act, and this is who we are. I'm not, we're not just some faceless people on the, you know, running the faceless, nameless corporation. You know, I think it's important to to get in there and 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 have people understand this real human beings who are making decisions. Um, and I think uh, things are lost over Zoom. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I hope while some efficiencies are gained, we go back to, to more human interaction. Scott, can you comment on things that are lost over Zoom? We have to get back to we have to get back into rooms for for some purposes. There are more things maybe that can be done over over video or phone than I used to think. But and, and I've I've been a reluctant Adopter. So maybe six or seven years ago, when video conferencing technology lagged even a little more, I recall I was getting ready to defend the deposition of a, a derivatives trader at a bank who, who sat in London. 
the deposition was going to be in New York. So I spoke to the head of litigation at the bank. I said, well, let's do a day in London, two weeks out, and then he can fly over here and we'll do a half day, you know, a day or two before he can rest up, uh, recover from jet lag. And the bank was cutting back on outside counsel, vendor travel more generally, and said, no, we want to do that initial session by video. And I, I, I must have blanched or balked a bit, but uh, uh, that's, that's what we did. So we had the session. Uh, it, was, it was a long session. And um, afterwards, the client called me and I said, uh, and asked me how I thought it had gone. And I, I tried to be appropriately contrite. You know, well, I think it worked. You know, we were able to understand each other. We covered a lot of ground. I guess I will have to learn um, that this is the way of the future. Little did I know several years later, um, we would all be doing this all the time. And I remember very distinctly the, um, the client said, did you notice anything strange about, I'll call him Francois, uh, Francois. And, and I said, well, no, not, not particularly. And the client said, well, his shirt was translucent from his underarm to his belt, because when you started preparing him on topic X, he was clearly incredibly nervous. Did you pick up on any of that? And I said, no, I did not. And then the next question was, how quickly can you get on a plane? And I said, I, I can get on a plane tomorrow. So there, there, is, there is definitely loss uh, uh, and less that can be accomplished uh, in communications, uh, especially when it's the first time you're meeting with someone, the first time you're dealing with someone. I think in established relationships, you can put up with the uh, indignities of a video conferencing a little better. Well, Robin Scott, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you, Christina, for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or on our website at nycbar.org slash podcasts. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris.